Section 8 of Billy Budd by Herman Melville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Scientific Methodist. Chapter 18. The unhappy event which has been narrated could not have happened at a worse juncture, for it was close on the heel of the suppressed insurrections, an after-time very critical to naval authority, demanding from every English sea commander two qualities not readily interfusable, prudence and rigor. Moreover, there was something crucial in the case. In the jugglery of circumstances preceding and attending the event on board the Indomitable, and in the light of that martial code whereby it was formally to be judged, innocence and guilt, personified in Cligert and Bud, in effect changed places. In the legal view, the apparent victim of the tragedy was he who had sought to victimize a man blameless, and the indisputable deed of the latter, navally regarded, constituted the most heinous of military crimes. Yet more, the essential right and wrong involved in the matter, the clearer that might be, so much the worse for the responsibility of a loyal sea commander, inasmuch as he was authorized to determine the matter on that primitive legal basis. Small wonder, then, that the Indomitable's captain, though in general a man of rigid decision, felt that circumspectness not less than promptitude was necessary. Until he could decide upon his course, and in each detail and not only so, but until the concluding measure was upon the point of being enacted, he deemed it advisable, in view of all the circumstances, to guard as much as possible against publicity. Here he may or may not have erred. Certain it is, however, that subsequently, in the confidential talk of more than one or two gun-rooms and cabins, he was not a little criticized by some officers, a fact imputed by his friends, and vehemently by his cousin Jack Denton, to professional jealousy of Starry Veer. Some imaginative ground for invidious comment there was. The maintenance of secrecy in the matter, the confining all knowledge of it for a time to the place where the homicide occurred, the quarter-deck cabin, in these particulars lurked some resemblance to the policy adopted in those tragedies of the palace which have occurred more than once in the capital founded by Peter the Barbarian, great chiefly by his crimes. The case was such that fain would the indomitable's captain have deferred taking any action whatever respecting it further than to keep the foretopman a close prisoner till the ship rejoined the squadron, and then submitting the matter to the judgment of his admiral. But a true military officer is in one particular like a true monk. Not with more of self-abnegation will the latter keep his vows of monastic obedience than the former his vows of allegiance to martial duty. Feeling that unless quick action was taken on it, the deed of the foretopman, as soon as it should be known on the gun-decks, would tend to awaken any slumbering embers of the Nor among the crew. A sense of the urgency of the case overruled in Captain Vere every other consideration. But though a conscientious disciplinarian, he was no lover of authority for mere authority's sake. Very far was he from embracing opportunities for monopolizing to himself the perils of moral responsibility, none at least that could properly be referred to an official superior, or shared with him by his official equals, or even subordinates. So thinking, he was glad it would not be at variance with usage to turn the matter over to a summary court of his own officers, reserving to himself, as the one on whom the ultimate accountability would rest, the right of maintaining a supervision of it, or formally or informally interposing at need. Accordingly, a drumhead court was summarily convened, 
he electing the individuals composing it, the first lieutenant, the captain of marines, and the sailing master. In associating an officer of marines with the sea lieutenant in a case having to do with a sailor, the commander perhaps deviated from general custom. He was prompted thereto by the circumstance that he took that soldier to be a judicious person, thoughtful and not altogether incapable of grappling with a difficult case unprecedented in his prior experience. Yet even as to him he was not without some latent misgiving, for withal he was an extremely good-natured man, an enjoyer of his dinner, a sound sleeper, and inclined to obesity. The sort of man who, though he would always maintain his manhood in battle, might not prove altogether reliable in a moral dilemma involving aught of the tragic. As to the first lieutenant and the sailing master, Captain Veer could not but be aware that though honest natures, of approved gallantry upon occasion, their intelligence was mostly confined to the matter of active seamanship and the fighting demands of their profession. The court was held in the same cabin where the unfortunate affair had taken place. This cabin, the commander's, embraced the entire area under the poop deck. Aft and on either side was a small stateroom, the one room temporarily a jail and the other a dead house, and a yet smaller compartment leaving a space between, expanding forward into a goodly oblong of length coinciding with the ship's beam. A skylight of moderate dimensions was overhead, and at each end of the oblong space were two sashed porthole windows easily convertible back into embrasures for short carronades. All being quickly in readiness, Billy Bud was arraigned, Captain Veer necessarily appearing as the sole witness in the case, and as such temporarily sinking his rank, though singularly maintaining it in a matter apparently trivial, namely, that he testified from the ship's weather side, with that object having caused the court to sit on the lee side. Concisely he narrated all that had led up to the catastrophe, omitting nothing in Clygert's accusation, and deposing as to the manner in which the prisoner had received it. At this testimony the three officers glanced with no little surprise at Billy Budd, the last man they would have suspected, either of mutinous design alleged by Clygert, or of the undeniable deed he himself had done. The first lieutenant taking judicial primary, and turning toward the prisoner, said, Captain Veer has spoken. Is it or is it not as Captain Veer says? In response came syllables not so much impeded in the utterance as might have been anticipated. They were these. Captain Veer tells the truth. It is just as Captain Veer says, but it is not as the master-at-arms said. I have eaten the king's bread, and I am true to the king. I believe you, my man, said the witness, his voice indicating a suppressed emotion not otherwise betrayed. God will bless you for that, your honor. Not without stammering, said Billy, and all but broke down. But immediately was recalled to self-control by another question, to which, with the same emotional difficulty of utterance, he said, No, there was no malice between us. I never bore malice against the master-at-arms. I am sorry that he is dead. I did not mean to kill him. Could I have used my tongue, I would not have struck him. But he foully lied to my face and in the presence of my captain, and I had to say something, and I could only say it with a blow. God help me. In the impulsive, above-board manner of the frank one, the court saw confirmed all that was implied in words that just previously had perplexed them, coming as they did from the testifier to the tragedy, and promptly following Billy's impassioned disclaimer of mutinous intent, Captain Veer's words, I believe you, my man. Next it was asked of him whether he knew of or suspected aught savoring of incipient trouble, meaning mutiny, though the explicit term was avoided, 
going on in any section of the ship's company. The reply lingered. This was naturally imputed by the court to the same vocal embarrassment which had retarded or obstructed previous answers. But in Maine it was otherwise here. The question immediately recalling to Billy's mind the interview with the afterguardsman in the forechains. But an innate repugnance to playing a part at all approaching that of an informer against one's own shipmates, the same erring sense of uninstructed honor which had stood in the way of his reporting the matter at the time, though as a loyal man-of-war's man it was incumbent on him, and failure so to do it charged against him and proven would have subjected him to the heaviest of penalties. This, with the blind feeling now his, that nothing really was being hatched, prevailed with him. When the answer came, it was a negative. One question more, said the officer of Marines, now first speaking, and with a troubled earnestness. You tell us that what the master-at-arms said against you was a lie. Now why should he have so lied, so maliciously lied, since you declare there was no malice between you? At that question, unintentionally touching on a spiritual sphere, wholly obscure to Billy's thoughts, he was nonplussed, evincing a confusion indeed that some observers such as can be imagined would have construed into involuntary evidence of hidden guilt. Nevertheless, he strove some way to answer, but all at once relinquished the vain endeavor, at the same time turning an appealing glance toward Captain Veer, as deeming him his best helper and friend. Captain Veer, who had been seated for a time, rose to his feet, addressing the interrogator. The question you put to him comes naturally enough, but how can he rightly answer it, or anybody else, unless indeed it be he who lies within there, designating the compartment where lay the corpse? But the prone one there will not rise to our summons. In effect, though, as it seems to me, the point you make is hardly material. Quite aside from any conceivable motive actuating the master-at-arms, and irrespective of the provocation of the blow, a martial court must needs in the present case confine its attention to the blow's consequence, which consequence is to be deemed not otherwise than as the striker's deed. This utterance, the full significance of which it was not at all likely that Billy took in, nevertheless caused him to turn a wistful, interrogative look toward the speaker, a look in its dumb expressiveness not unlike that which a dog of generous breed might turn upon his master seeking in his face some elucidation of a previous gesture ambiguous to the canine intelligence. Nor was the same utterance without marked effect upon the three officers, more especially the soldier. Couched in it seemed to them a meaning unanticipated, involving a prejudgment on the speaker's part. It served to augment a mental disturbance previously evident enough. The soldier once more spoke, in a tone of suggestive dubiety, addressing at once his associates and Captain Veer. Nobody is present, none of the ship's company, I mean, who might shed lateral light, if any is to be had, upon what remains mysterious in this matter. That is thoughtfully put, said Captain Veer. I see your drift. Aye, there is a mystery, but to use a scriptural phrase, it is a mystery of iniquity, a matter for psychological theologians to discuss. But what has a military court to do with it? Not to add that for us, any possible investigation of it is cut off by the lasting tongue-tie of him in yonder, again designating the mortuary stateroom. The prisoner's deed, with that alone we have to do. To this, and particularly the closing reiteration, the marine soldier, knowing not how aptly to reply, sadly abstained from saying aught. The first lieutenant, who at the outset had not unnaturally assumed primacy in the court, now overrulingly instructed by a glance from Captain Veer, 
a glance more effective than words, resumed that primacy. Turning to the prisoner, Bud, he said, and scarce in equable tones, Bud, if you have aught further to say for yourself, say it now. Upon this the young sailor turned another quick glance toward Captain Veer, then, as taking a hint from that aspect, a hint confirming his own instinct that silence was now best, replied to the lieutenant, I have said all, sir. The marine, the same who had been the sentinel without the cabin door at the time that the foretopman, followed by the master-at-arms, entered it, he, standing by the sailor throughout their judicial proceedings, was now directed to take him back to the after-compartment originally assigned to the prisoner and his custodian. As the twain disappeared from view, the three officers, as partially liberated from some inward constraint associated with Billy's mere presence, simultaneously stirred in their seats. They exchanged looks of troubled indecision, yet feeling that decide they must, and without long delay, for Captain Veer was for the time sitting unconsciously with his back toward them, apparently in one of his absent fits, gazing out from a sashed portal to windward upon the monotonous blank of the twilight sea. But the court's silence continuing, broken only at moments by brief consultations in low, earnest tones, this seemed to assure him and encourage him. Turning, he to and fro paced the cabin athwart in the returning ascent to windward, climbing the slant deck in the ship's lee roll. Without knowing it symbolizing thus in his action a mind resolute to surmount difficulties even if against primitive instincts strong as the wind in the sea. Presently he came to a stand before the three. After scanning their faces he stood less as mustering his thoughts for expression than as one only deliberating how best to put them to well-meaning men not intellectually mature, men with whom it was necessary to demonstrate certain principles that were axioms to himself. Similar impatience as to talking is perhaps one reason that deters some minds from addressing any popular assemblies, under which head is to be classed most legislatures in a democracy. When speak he did, something both from the substance of what he said and his manner of saying it showed the influence of unshared studies modifying and tempering the practical training of an active career. This, along with his phraseology now and then, was suggestive of the grounds whereon rested that imputation of a certain pedantry socially alleged against him by certain naval men of wholly practical caste, captains who nevertheless would frankly concede that His Majesty's Navy mustered no more efficient officers of their grade than Starry Veer. What he said was to this effect, Hitherto I have been but the witness, little more, and I should hardly think now to take another tone, that of your coadjutor. For the time did I not perceive in you, at the crisis too, a troubled hesitancy, proceeding, I doubt not, from the clashing of military duty with moral scruple, scruple vitalized by compassion. For the compassion, how can I otherwise but share it? But mindful of paramount obligation, I strive against scruples that may tend to enervate decision. Not, gentlemen, that I hide from myself that the case is an exceptional one, speculatively regarded it well might be referred to a jury of casuists but for us here acting not as casuists or moralists it is a case practical and under martial law practically to be dealt with but your scruples do they move as in a dusk challenge them make them advance and declare themselves come now do they impart something like this if, mindless of palliating circumstances, we are bound to regard the death of the master-at-arms as the prisoner's deed, then does that deed constitute a capital crime whereof the penalty is a mortal one. But in natural justice is nothing but the prisoner's overt act to be considered? 
Now can we adjudge to summary and shameful death a fellow creature, innocent before God, and whom we feel to be so? Does that state it all right? You sign sad assent. Well, I too feel that, the full force of that. It is nature. But do these buttons that we wear attest that our allegiance is to nature? No, to the king. Though the ocean, which is inviolate nature primeval, though this be the element where we move and have our being as sailors, yet as the king's officers lies our duty in a sphere correspondingly natural? So little is that true that in receiving our commissions we in the most important regard cease to be natural free agents. When war is declared, are we the commissioned fighters previously consulted? We fight at command. If our judgments approve the war, that is but coincidence. So in other particulars. So now, would it be so much we ourselves that would condemn as it would be martial law operating through us? For that law and the rigor of it, we are not responsible. Our vowed responsibility is in this, that however pitilessly that law may operate, we nevertheless adhere to it and administer it. But the exceptional in the matter moves the heart within you. Even so, too, is mine moved. But let not warm hearts betray heads that should be cool. Ashore in a criminal case will an upright judge allow himself off the bench to be waylaid by some tender kinswoman of the accused seeking to touch him with her tearful plea? Well, the heart here is as that piteous woman. The heart is the feminine in man, and hard though it be, she must here be ruled out. He paused, earnestly studying them for a moment, then resumed. But something in your aspect seems to urge that it is not solely that heart that moves in you, but also the conscience, the private conscience. But tell me whether or not, occupying the position we do, private conscience should not yield to that imperial one formulated in the code under which alone we officially proceed. Here the three men moved in their seats, less convinced than agitated by the course of an argument troubling but the more the spontaneous conflict within. Perceiving which, the speaker paused for a moment, then abruptly changing his tone, went on. To steady us a bit, let us recur to the facts. In wartime, at sea, a man-of-war's man strikes his superior in grade, and the blow kills. Apart from its effect, the blow itself is, according to the Articles of War, a capital crime. Furthermore, I, sir, emotionally broke in the officer of Marines, in one sense it was, but surely Bud purposed neither mutiny nor homicide. Surely not, my good man. And before a court less arbitrary and more merciful than a martial one, that plea would largely extenuate. At the last assizes it shall acquit. But how here? We proceed under the law of the Mutiny Act. In feature, no child can resemble his father more than that act resembles in spirit the thing from which it derives, war. In His Majesty's service, in this ship indeed, there are Englishmen forced to fight for the king against their will, against their conscience, for aught we know. Though as their fellow creatures some of us may appreciate their position, yet as navy officers, what wreck we of it? Still less wrecks the enemy. Our impressed men he would fain cut down in the same swath with our volunteers. As regards the enemy's naval conscripts, some of whom may even share our own abhorrence of the regicidal French directory, it is the same on our side. War looks but to the frontage, the appearance, and the mutiny act, war's child, takes after the father. Bud's intent or non-intent is nothing to the purpose. But while, put to it by those anxieties in you which I cannot but respect, I only repeat myself, 
while thus strangely we prolong proceedings that should be summary, the enemy may be sighted and an engagement result. We must do, and one of two things must we do, condemn or let go. Can we not convict and yet mitigate the penalty? asked the junior lieutenant, here speaking and falteringly for the first. Lieutenant, were that clearly lawful for us under the circumstances, consider the consequences of such clemency. The people, meaning the ship's company, have native sense. Most of them are familiar with our naval usage and tradition. And how would they take it? Even could you explain it to them, which our official position forbids, they, long molded by arbitrary discipline, have not that kind of intelligent responsiveness that might qualify them to comprehend and discriminate. No, to the people the foretopman's deed, however it be worded in the announcement, will be plain homicide committed in a flagrant act of mutiny. What penalty for that should follow, they know. But it does not follow. Why, they will ruminate. You know what sailors are. Will they not revert to the recent outbreak at the Nore? Aye, they know the well-founded alarm, the panic it struck throughout England. Your clement sentence they would account pusillanimous. They would think that we flinch, that we are afraid of them, afraid of practicing a lawful rigor singularly demanded at this juncture lest it should provoke new troubles. What shame to us such a conjecture on their part, and how deadly to discipline. You see them wither, prompted by duty and the law, I steadfastly drive. But I beseech you, my friends, do not take me amiss. I feel as you do for this unfortunate boy. But did he know our hearts, I take him to be of that generous nature that he would feel even for us on whom in this military necessity so heavy a compulsion is laid. With that, crossing the deck, he resumed his place by the sashed porthole, tacitly leaving the three to come to a decision. On the cabin's opposite side the troubled court sat silent. Loyal lieges, plain and practical, though at bottom they dissented from some points Captain Veer had put to them, they were without the faculty, hardly had the inclination to gainsay one whom they felt to be an earnest man, one, too, not less their superior in mind than in naval rank. But it is not improbable that even such of his words as were not without influence over them came home to them less than his closing appeal to their instinct as sea officers. He forecasted the practical consequences to discipline, considering the unconfirmed tone of the fleet at the time, if violent killing at sea by a man-of-war's man of a superior in grade were allowed to pass for aught else than a capital crime, and one demanding prompt infliction of the penalty. Not unlikely they were brought to something more or less akin to that harassed frame of mind which in the year 1842 actuated the commander of the U.S. Brig of War Summers to resolve, under the so-called Articles of War, articles modeled upon the English Mutiny Act, to resolve upon the execution at sea of a midshipman and two petty officers as mutineers designing the seizure of the brig, which resolution was carried out though in a time of peace and within not many days' sail of home, an act vindicated by a naval court of inquiry subsequently convened ashore. History, and here cited without comment. True, the circumstances on board the Summers were different from those on board the Indomitable, but the urgency felt, well warranted or otherwise, was much the same. Says a writer whom few know, Forty years after a battle, it is easy for a non-combatant to reason about how it ought to have been fought. It is another thing personally and under fire to direct the fighting while involved in the obscuring smoke of it. 
much so with respect to other emergencies involving considerations both practical and moral, and when it is imperative promptly to act. The greater the fog, the more it imperils the steamer, and speed is put on though at the hazard of running somebody down. Little ween the snug card players in the cabin of the responsibilities of the sleepless man on the bridge. In brief, Billy Budd was formally convicted and sentenced to be hung at the yardarm in the early morning watch, it being now night. Otherwise, as is customary in such cases, the sentence would forthwith have been carried out. In wartime on the field or in the fleet, a mortal punishment decreed by a drumhead court, on the field sometimes decreed by but a nod from the general, follows without delay on the heel of conviction, without appeal. End of section 8 Recording by Scientific Methodist